1: guest today, Bob Sullivan, is a senior writer for MSNBC specializing in computer crime, electronic financial fraud, privacy, and the internet underground. His red tape chronicles combine investigative reporting with community blogging to unmask government waste and corporate misbehaviors. As a writer with publications defining financial setbacks and deep problems in our financial systems worldwide, he continues to support the need for change and personal financial well-being in a changing society. Bob Sullivan, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Bob, what I'd like to do is go back uh, to your earlier days, uh, your childhood, and uh, chart your journey through to the present time, if I may. Um, Where was it uh, that you originally came from? I grew up just out in
2: New Jersey, just outside of New York City, uh, of uh, Irish parents. Um, All my grandparents are actually Irish. Uh, and I grew up in a, a small Irish neighborhood just about 10
1: minutes west of New York. What are the, the main things that you remember about that period, that childhood, um, uh, you know, that, that young adulthood that, uh, that you can compare to the, the pressures that kids have today?
2: Uh, I actually really, really cherish uh, the time that I was born and the time that I grew up. I'm 41, uh, so I was born in the 60s. Uh, but yet, I was just young enough in 1994, 95, when the internet became a phenomenon, uh, that I wasn't too old to read email or, or catch on. And in fact, um, I was in graduate school at the time, and and I was fairly qualified as a whiz kid at my first job out of graduate school, uh, surrounded by old hardened journalists. Um, but in uh, the early 90s, I got into journalism young enough that I do actually remember physically cutting and pasting stories. And so my life has really spanned uh the change from a mechanical to the digital, from uh the industrial, the very very uh, end of the industrial age and to the, the the technological age that we live
1: in now. When and you when when you talk about um uh the end of the industrial age, are you citing uh the dilapidation in our manufacturing base and in the core industries that that we had back then?
2: Yeah, and I would say uh, you know, we've had this tremendous change to what some folks like to call the knowledge-based economy. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical of that. Um, seems like knowledge is often at a premium, uh, particularly knowledge of how to do things. Uh, but, but really, a whole bunch of folks uh, have had to really change the way they approach uh, their work and their financial lives. My, my father was born in 1933, so old enough to remember the Depression, really a Depression-era kid, and the war. And so those are really the values that governed my childhood my my parents didn 't believe in in debt at all uh, believed in in saving a lot um, were very uh, very very patriotic but also very skeptical of of uh, of change and, and liberalism and those sorts of things like you would be from that era so it gave me a lot of those core values too
1: How do you think that that life has changed though since then i mean we back in the u k we we saw the um, retirement, as it were, of the base m- manufacturing industries. We saw our coal industry dissipate, our steel industry disappear, um, and all these skills that that followed. Um, and in the 60s and 70s, we also saw the end of apprenticeships um, where kids could go through school and not necessarily be pressured down the, the academia road, but could go into into careers where they could work with their hands. Uh, do you see that picture now, today, where we have lost those those industries and those core values that may never come back again?
2: I, I do, and it really, really concerns me. Uh, I I joke, uh, not really a joke, with friends often that I think one day we'll wake up and no one will know how to fix the roads. No one will know how to fix the power lines that that go down. No one will know how to fix the toilet when it stopped. Um, and there are a lot of consequences for that, and if we want to drag it into the financial realm, um, that thanks to the world of apprenticeships, it used to take five or ten years just to build a career in an industry and to know what you were doing. And we don't have that anymore because people are supposed to know what they're doing immediately, but they're also supposed to not have any loyalty to what they do. People change careers constantly, and and in the end, companies, of course, don't have any loyalty to the people who they hire for the most part. So Defined benefits plans, Um, you know, the real safety net that people had. Uh, There was this notion, social contract, if you will, if you give your life to a company and you do pretty well, uh, you will end your life pretty well. Uh, That's completely gone. Now we're all on our own. We all have retirement accounts, 401Ks. uh, The the, the investment that companies make in 401Ks is paltry compared to the old investment they would make in defined benefits, pension plans. And so this sense of, of we're all on our own, uh, has has made it a bit of a free for all for people as they go through their their careers. No loyalty and and not much of a, a safe future.
1: Isn't it safe to say though that industry is people as much as people are industry? So, uh, you know, if I look back at at my father, he he was demobbed uh, from the the British Army in 1955 after the Suez Crisis. He went into the Prudential Assurance Company and he stayed there for 40 years. Yeah. Th- that doesn't occur anymore. Um, what is it that kids are facing today? I mean, I, and I realize here we're going to get into some really large issues <laughs> around finance, uh, uh, around the, the state of the economy, um, but we're not really leading by example here, are we? And certainly, would you agree with me that industry is failing dismally in trying to uh, reencourage encourage um, the economy, re-encourage uh, diversity in careers and jobs?
2: Well, uh, I would agree. Uh, and as long as we're heading down a very grand and, and, I think, alarming road, uh, there's a tremendous, uh, outrageous disconnect, I would say, between what we're educating kids to do and what they do once they leave school. Uh, I, uh, I can't think of a 23-year-old who I know who left college and is doing precisely what they were trained to do in college. Um, I was, we are, have already raised the idea of technical schools uh, from the 70s and 60s. I was just discussing earlier today uh, with someone that technical school that, that was near me when I grew up uh, has been closed. Uh, technical schools all around America have been closed and, uh, and it's because we, we no longer value those kinds of crafts and instead we want to prepare people for, well, for, for what I'm not sure, honestly. What I do know, and I have a lot of stuff in my book about student loans, is that kids are graduating from school with an unbelievable debt burden, seven, $800 a month loan payments that they have to make, and they have no sellable skill. Uh, they, they graduate, they have a piece of paper in their hands, and maybe they can, can read and write fairly well, but there's nothing for sure that they know that they can do that somebody will pay them $30 an hour for. And I think that's a crime, especially at a time when we just don't have room in our economy for people to graduate from school and enter the workforce without uh without uh, real prospects
1: what do you think was the catalyst for this uh, um i am with you i'm i'm slightly older than you i'm 47 um and i grew up through the 60s and 70s and 80s and and i was in the same uh, era where i could uh, learn um uh, technology i could learn computers i could i could um uh, uh, bring myself to understand the internet, uh, and what an amazing revolution it was! And yet, uh, being in media, uh, it has uh, decimated so many careers, so many jobs. Um, how do how do we come to a uh, a, a stage here where uh, the internet and technology uh, really truly serves us, and 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 not uh, continues to? take us down an IT world um, and, and further and further away from mechanization, engineering, the old skills. Uh, was a
2: surprise, right? The internet was supposed to give us great leisure and expand our job opportunities. That's what all the, the go-go 90s were about. And in the end, it looks like you know the digital economy has, has, has eaten our economy uh, and left us with very little as a result. Um, I'm not sure that uh, that all economists would agree with our hypothesis here. Um, there's there's a lot of talk about creative destruction. And, you know, you and I both work in, in media, so we can't help but look around us and see uh, countless friends who've lost their jobs. And they're no, they can't find any... They're gone. The replacements are gone in, in old-fashioned journalism. Um, but they have been replaced by websites. They have been replaced by bloggers. Uh, the, the replacement is very inelegant, and right now um, probably... Uh, probably not as good, but evolving. Uh, And I I think that we all need to be honest with ourselves in our profession, and this would apply to many, many professions, that the folks who owned newspapers, for the most part, uh, were sitting on cash cows through the 80s and 90s and and didn't invest in their future or their people the way that they needed to and were blindsided by a lot of what happened, even though they were warning that the iceberg was coming for years. And and so, you know, how much of this is, is Technology destroying an industry and how much of this is technology, um, you know, causing creative destruction, which is necessary when companies are fat and lazy. I think it's both.
1: What do we need to do here? Um, uh, can we learn from history at this stage? Can we look at social history? Uh, can we look upon this uh, period that we're growing up in now as a second or third in- industrial revolution? Uh, and and if we look back at 1929, we saw an economy that spiked uh, several times that, that then was um, uh, taken care of, essentially, by uh, a world war that uh, um, uh, brought uh, jobs back. Um, But back in those days, the government uh, dug itself out of that crisis by putting people back into jobs uh, through um, uh, government... Um, projects.
2: WPA work programs, yeah. In,
1: in, in agriculture, in yeah. industry. Well, they cannot do that now. Uh, now, do we not have at this stage a double whammy, uh, I don't like using that word, but do we not have a problem here that um, the government does not really have any strong ideas on how to create employment again? Uh, um, which is impacted by this financial meltdown that we're still in. Uh, what, what is it to your mind that we have to do at this stage that, that our predecessors back in the 30s m- managed to do to dig us out of such a dreadful situation?
2: Well, well, you know, the, I think the most concerning thing of all is that I think the economists are still driving the bus here uh, when the economists largely had it wrong in the 20s and in the 30s and, of course, last decade. I mean, folks just didn't see this coming, I mean, I think uh, lots of individuals saw it coming, Um, but all the folks, Ellen Greenspan on down, were surprised by this, so uh, I actually do not, uh, I'm not sure that there is that much for us to learn in the way that we have handled things in the past. It's certainly debatable how much the um, government work programs helped during the 1930s. Uh, They obviously helped the people who had jobs, but um, I think we're still arguing over what actually got us out of the Great Depression, honestly. Uh, And so we're going to be arguing about this one for a long time, too. But I I, I definitely agree with your premise that because we're in this brand-new economy, uh, the government is very ill-suited to figure out uh, what what kind of investments to make and or I think it needs to be a combination and what places to get out of the way or or to give tax advantages uh, to industries and groups so that they can uh, can invest and grow right now. Uh, You know, you don't want to be picking winners and losers in a dynamic economy because... Um, you know the government's usually pretty bad
1: at that. Where did this all start Bob? Uh, I mean we can look back at the 80's um, at the Margaret Thatcher years, uh, the Reagan years we can look at a burning economy uh, in the 90's and early uh, in in this last decade. Um, What is it that uh, reversed the advantages, the benefits of capitalism uh what is it that that completely turned on uh, uh its head the american dream um was it the financial sector i I'm, and and you know looking at that and i could become very cynical about this but uh, w- we we saw this meltdown uh, arriving back in probably as early as 06 uh, 07 at which stage we realized that the financial institutions were uh, really uh, getting themselves into a dreadful mess, um, but have have we really any uh, really achieved anything at this stage uh, in the second quarter of 2010, as as far as government um, uh, action is concerned?
2: You know, it's hard to say. Uh, unemployment is still at at astronomical levels. Uh, headline number is nine point seven percent, but you know, I. I I hate using the headline number because the real number should be something more like 17%. It should include folks who've given up, for example, or folks who are severely underemployed. So that's, that's an amazing number. Oh, one in six adult males between 25 and 54 are unemployed, an amazing number. So I think it's really hard to say we've come very far. Uh, the argument you always hear from the administration is it would have been worse if we hadn't done the things that we had done, and it's very hard to, to prove or disprove that uh, you know, but, but clearly there, there haven't been great strides made and I think it's really important and this is going to be um, a big part of the recovery is that people accept the new reality of our economy. Uh, we're not going back to, to 2006, 2005. This is not a blip on the radar that we can recover from. We have lost um, 7 to 8 million jobs in our economy and in, in, I can tease out these numbers for you on, on my website but in short form If we churn along at high growth rate, at 3% a year, it will take us most of this decade to get back the jobs we've lost just to recover to where we were, say, in 2004, 2005. So uh, understanding that we're not going to get back to a place where your home sells in two or three weeks for more than you listed for, perhaps for this generation. I think getting to, you know, understanding and, and getting our heads around this new reality is going to be a big part of the recovery.
1: There, there, to my mind, were pivotal and profound mistakes made um, around the end of probably the last quarter of 2008. We had these uh, TARPs and and massive funding efforts. Uh, Would you agree somewhat with me that it actually um, uh, exasperated the situation in Wall Street and the financial centers around the world rather than Um, uh, brought them back down to earth. It it seems to me that we have a a roaring um, uh, financial sector, which is completely out of... um, uh, It's just such a shift from the reality that we see out uh, there today. Um, Has this been a pivotal mistake?
2: Has Wall Street and Main Street ever been farther away from each other? Uh, you know, this is going to turn out to be one of the, the uh, best 18-month stretches that Wall Street has, has ever seen, and, and yet you know, the rest of the country uh, can't see any of that recovery. Uh, I'm going to give you an answer that journalists hate to hear, which is uh, I, I can't tell you right now if that was a pivotal mistake, if TARP was a pivotal p- mistake, and if, uh, if the stimulus and the way it was handed out was a pivotal mistake, uh, specifically TARP, because we know so little about where that money went. Uh, I'm friends with Elizabeth Warren, uh, who is the congressionally appointed overseer of the TARP funds. And you probably have heard her speak if you don't know her name. Uh, she's supposed to be the one who keeps all of that money accountable. And she has said over and over uh, to Congress and to the banks, you know, where'd the money go? And we don't know. Uh, the, the money's just been sloughed up in the system uh, unaccounted for in large part. So uh, it, it's very hard for me to give you a, a good opinion as to whether that money went for ill or good, uh, I, I think going forward, the, um, the, tr- the tremendous risk that we've created, uh, and I use the word risk ironically, I suppose, is, uh, you know, all of this happened because folks on Wall Street went on on these incredible limbs believing that they would never suffer any, any harm because they thought they had outsmarted the system. These quants, these mathematical geniuses had come up with new formulas that eliminated risk and they could bundle it up and, and make it impossible for things to ever go badly, well they were wrong, and things went badly and uh, that creates what economists like to call a moral hazard if you rescue someone who's done something bad because now of course they'll they'll do it again. The great irony, of course, is last year three million Americans lost their homes and were sent letters that basically said to them, in foreclosure, you made a bad bet now you have to own up to it. you homeowner, but yet we haven't closed as a society, as a government, on these banks.
1: Well, d- is that not an absolute crime that so many people, so many families have lost their houses? And, and yes, there has to be accountability on, on both sides. But essentially, there was a period of, of four or five years where financial institutions, brokers, mortgage brokers, uh, what have you, were quite deliberate and quite irresponsible in their lending habits. Um, and, and yet it seems to me that we now have those very people uh, still uh, surviving, still making an awful lot of money, and on what? Um, is, is that not an irony at this stage?
2: Yeah, it's, it's worse than an irony. I would say my, uh, easily my biggest disappointment in the current administration has been how it's handled uh, what I call the problem of empty homes. Uh, we all know that housing is at the core of this economic crisis, And so figuring out the housing problem should be the first order of business if you're trying to fix the economy. And all the efforts to help folks who are on the edge of losing their homes have been uh, tepid and half measures and all designed uh, to help the banks. And it's been uh, incredibly disappointing that the Help for Homeowners program that you probably have heard of uh, was supposed to help perhaps 4 or 5 million Americans. As of uh, the end of last year, it had only helped about 60,000 uh, and if you look at these complex formulas they had come up with to figure out who was eligible and how they became eligible and, and what did you have to do? You have to make trial payments slightly less than your old mortgage payments, and if you do that, you're entitled to uh, essentially an adjustment that makes your mortgage longer and maybe reduces your interest rate a tiny, a tiny bit. Uh, but I've talked to folks who were supposed to have these things modified after three months, and it's been 12 months later, and the paperwork nightmares are extensive. Uh, but at core... What the, the one thing that hasn't been acceptable to the banking industry or the administration has been to say, hey, you know what, this home and this loan are not worth what we thought they were anymore. Homeowner, you're going to have to lose value in your home. Bank, you're going to have to write down some of the value of this loan. It's called a cram down. And it's the one thing that we haven't asked banks to do is to lose money. When we have asked homeowners to lose money, millions of them, and I find that uh, just hard to understand
1: so if we if we look at the big picture i'm trying not to be too um, pessimistic about this, we have a in excess of ten trillion deficit nationally, we have um, no accountability or information um, on where tarPS or any other incentives have gone. Uh, and we now have a situation where we have massive unemployment and the possibility of inflationary um, risks uh, on a corporate scale, on a on a, a scale uh, talking about the makeup of a country. Um, what is this all telling us at this stage?
2: Well, we are uh, we are we, we are in for a long a long dry spell. Um, you, you just raised the inflation issue, which of course is, is a. You know, if this were a horror movie, this would be this what happens when the the girl who's being chased gets out of the house and finally escapes the monster behind her, and the second monster jumps up from the front lawn as she thinks that she's made it to safety. Um, we have so much cash that we owe. Uh, th- th- there's almost no way that we won't have some inflationary spike. Um, the Federal Reserve is going to thread the eye of a needle and try to raise interest rates just before the inflation hits and try to keep it under control. Uh, that's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, we, you know, as personally we have all of this debt. Uh, nationally, we have all of this debt. Uh, bondholders are going to be very nervous, already nervous about how we're going to pay it back, and they're going to demand higher premiums. And and uh, you know, eventually, that's going to make that's going to make for a second monster for all, all of us to deal with.
1: Well, before we turn to um, talking about us as individuals and human beings in society, um, what about um, the responsibility of industry? Um, we we probably um, have um, 300 major industries um, that are probably uh, more in control and have greater wealth and a greater GDP than many countries in the, in the world, um, that clearly in what I consider this to be a rebirth period, um, are going to face attrition. Um, what, what is it about industry that is still so uh, controlled by agendas and still has uh, such little transparency? Uh, why is that still? Why is it that they are not opening up and really um, creating uh, major strategies to get people back into work?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, we, <clears throat> we have some simmering debates here in, in the U.S., which I'm glad to see, and, and a crisis like this sh- should bring some of these issues out. And one of the things that you're beginning to hear some murmuring, murmuring about is uh, what's sometimes called corporate personhood. So, uh, corporations have equal rights to people uh, in in the u s and one of the results of that is shareholders have tremendous rights and uh, one thing that 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 I think uh, Americans naively uh, take for granted with companies is that somewhere overriding everything is a moral ethic uh, to to do good in the world when that is not. Uh, corporations are not organized to do good. They're organized to make money for shareholders. And you know, that's the decision that they will repeatedly make. Uh, not, not that corporations don't go beyond that on occasion, uh, but when they do that, they're, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, not, not for, for any other reason. And in many cases, they may even be doing it and be liable for a lawsuit by a shareholder who says you're not acting in shareholder interest. Uh, there, there are places in the world... Where, uh, despite the, the rights of corporations and shareholders, there is an overarching ethic to take care of, care of employees, to, um, to, to have vision for the future. Uh, you hear all sorts of stories during the Depression, for example, of corporations and, and, and employees working together to try to stay open. Um, we don't have that ethic anymore. And, and for better and probably more for worse, uh, now that uh, U.S. corporations, or so many of them are multinational, these ethics are being spread throughout the world. Um, I was reading stories about uh, global uh, liquor conglomerates in the Wall Street Journal recently and uh, about a Belgian town that was rioting because their local Belgian brewery, which had recently been acquired by a company that had been acquired by a U.S. company, uh, they were striking, but they weren't getting anywhere because the, the brewery was laying off people because it wasn't efficient enough. And Tell Belgian they're not efficient enough making their beer and their eyes are going to roll back in their head, but that's the world we live in now, unless we decide to do something about that.
1: Well, and and what does one do uh, if you look back at history? Uh, and I and the problem with history is that we we learn we understand history, but we never learn from it. Um, what does it take to uh, change this paradigm? I mean, clearly, you don't want to return to anything but a form of capitalism because it has um, proved that it's quite possibly the only way to to operate mm-hmm. but uh, in, in industry we're seeing we're still seeing um, uh, a problem with the uh, industry heads being able to uh, counter Profitability and responsibility to uh, shake uh, st- stakeholders uh, versus um, helping the very people who shape that 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 industry, that 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 business. Um, it, it, does it start in industry now? Given that uh, um, it, it seems as if politics is becoming so partisan, and 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 frankly. Becoming such a mess, is it going to be a future now that has to be shaped by industry, shaped by industry leaders, and shaped because of the feedback that they gain from people out in the street? Is that what it's going to take?
2: Well, well if we look backwards, um, you know, why in the end was Karl Marx wrong—that uh, we, we weren't all just going to go up in a capitalistic flame of greed—and uh, because a, a counterbalance developed from within, count, within capitalism, trade unions. Um, organization, and you know I, we clearly live in a world full of pendulums. Um, I, I think it can easily be argued that um, in the 70s uh, and prior that uh, and, and even still today in some cases we see this trade unions are too powerful uh, and um, and have, have limited uh, corporations from being entrepreneurial, for example, uh, but I think the vast majority of cases now and, and in the technology field, for example, is a great place to look at. The, Unions have no foothold at all. Uh, in fact, we've crossed a line here in the U.S. just in the past couple of years, which is quite remarkable. There are more unionized workers who work for the government, who are government employees, than there are unionized workers who work for a private corporation. So uh, the union movement has, uh, has, has just slunk away for the most part. And uh, maybe we call it something else, but there has to be some way to balance out the incredible power of corporations. Because right now, you know, when you have a dispute, and we're talking about big problems, but it's easy to see this through little situations, you have a dispute with your cell phone company or with your mortgage company over a late fee. Uh, basically, it's you against a billion-dollar company. And they have staff of lawyers. They have armies of uh, paperwork that they can cover you with. Uh, they have uh, congressional representatives in the bag through years of donations. And all you have is persuasion, which isn't going to cut it, um, there isn't even an agency you can call who will stick up for you. Uh, we're trying very hard to get one. That's one of the major reforms that have been proposed this year uh, in light of the economic collapse, the Consumer Financial Safety Commission. Uh, creating it, you would think we we're trying to, to create a new planet, how difficult it is. Uh, but it's simply the idea for it to be an agency, an advocate for, for people who have problems. There isn't one right now. And and the the only way to straighten this thing out and create... I'm kind of a, a prosperous preacher, is, is to spread the power out. There's, you know, there's, um, in most industries, if you think about your cable bill, your cell phone bill, your home phone, pay television, if there isn't a monopoly, there are duopolies or triopolies. You only have two or three choices, but all the power is very, very concentrated in those companies. And uh, we are left with almost uh, basically feeling powerless. That's why you know, I write about what I call more than anything else, uh, fine print rage. People
1: are just really angry. Well, I I I, I, out, spread I I that. Power out. Well, I I suppose though that in a way, as a consumer, we have. To, it's like pointing five fingers and four four back at yourself. It, it, we are governed in our lifestyles. Uh, we're governed in 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 our culture and our social habits by the very products that. Industry creates by the the lifestyles that they um, manipulate us with, uh, you know, with the WalMarts and and all of these m- major companies that are basically defining our lives as people rather than us defining what we need out of them, and that must be a huge problem at this stage, where, as you say, you have this this massive um, this massive beast. That, you, that, that the public, the consumer, has absolutely no effect upon. Uh,
2: I think that's true. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's interesting, almost everywhere that I talk about uh, my pet topic of consumer rights in this environment, uh, I, I always hear from people, and it's a good number of people in the audience, well, if your checking account went below zero, you deserve to pay a fine. If you uh, went to freecreditreport.com and didn't read the print at the bottom of the page, thought it was free. It's your fault. You deserve to pay for it. Um, and we, we live in, a, I think, a very dualistic time now where you're either Republican or Democrat or Christian or Muslim or um, black or Caucasian. And, and, and that's uh, that's really sad because one thing that prevents you from doing is saying the two things could be true at once. It, it could absolutely be true that it can be a consumer's fault and they deserve to pay something for making a mistake. Um, but that does not Give anyone the right to steal their money, and that has is, is basically been the justification for a long time. Um, consumers have made mistakes, and therefore uh, they should pay. Uh, even if the mistake is a five-dollar mistake, the punishment can be two hundred dollars. Those are the kinds of punishments that we have now that are accepted in the marketplace, uh, and and you know that's um, it's crazy logic. But we have gotten to a place I think where folks. Uh, often just can't get to
1: that next level uh, but the the trouble with though the grander picture is that if it was a couple of people making the mistakes you'd say well for goodness sake go back to college or something and start adding okay. up your arithmetic but we're talking about millions of people in this country who have done the same thing so doesn't that prove everything about the broken system in which we we uh, live at the moment
2: it, it does and uh, I wrote a book called Gotcha Capitalism three years ago where I, I laid out this system of hidden fees and manipulations and all that. And I heard back a lot of feedback from people saying, it's consumer's fault, what's wrong with Americans, they're stupid, they're lazy. And uh, I did research, wrote a new book called Stop Getting Ripped Off. But the first half of it asks this question, is it consumer's fault? And it turns out I found out they were stupid and lazy and greedy, all many of the things they've been accused of. Um, Stupid is a a terrible word, though, and and, uh, I'm going to put it in a much more sophisticated way now. Americans suffer from what I call, what others have called as well, innumeracy, which is basically mathematical illiteracy. It's a hidden epidemic, but basically half the country is incapable of calculating something like a tip on a lunch bill. And uh, I know that sounds like a, a lot, but if you just conjure up an image in your head of the last time you were at lunch with five or six friends, and the chaos that ensued when the bill came. People just can't figure out how to split things up and add on 7.5% tax and then add in a tip. And so uh, if you take a person who just can't deal with a lunch bill and put them in a car dealership or uh, with a mortgage broker, and and they don't stand a chance. And this is a problem that uh, it it, it affects not just students. Uh, American students are abysmal in their, their international test scores in mathematics. American teachers are abysmal in their test scores. The average elementary school teacher scores 50 p- points lower on the SAT tests than the national average. So, What does are, that
1: say about our system?
2: People are going into education. Being, they'll be the very first teacher someone has in math, and they themselves hate math and are afraid of math. We have very little rigor in mathematics education in the United States. I think that's, that's well known around the world. and uh, In the computer software world, for example, companies like Microsoft love hiring programmers from... Europe uh, From Ireland, for example, I know for sure uh, they opened an office there because of the rigor uh, that young technical students get there that they don 't get in the u s and um, you know how, how did that evolve? I think that's a long question but but one thing that I know and I 'm not uh, creating a conspiracy theory here. one thing I know for sure is that uninformed, unsophisticated consumers very, very profitable consumers for companies, and so it it ha- it during the go-go '90s. It didn't hurt any company, it didn't hurt a credit card company, it didn't hurt a cell phone company. That their customers just were incapable of adding up their bills and figuring out they were getting screwed. I,
1: I'm I'm terribly interested here, but I, I spend most of my time right now in Phoenix, Arizona, which, goodness only knows, has been hit terribly and and, uh, uh, other times in in Burbank in California, which which is a mess. Um, Is this as bad as we think it is? Because I'm beginning to think in talking to many industrialists, many um, uh, uh, philosophical leaders that we really are this time in such a poor situation that nobody really knows how to get us out of it, would would you agree with that?
2: Well, I, I would. Uh, and to complicate the, the thought even more, uh, I think one thing that's very difficult about our time right now is while we are in a very bad place, uh, we, to keep perspective, we're nowhere near uh, where we were during the depression. I mean, there are depression had twenty five percent unemployment, you know, real unemployment. Um, we had soup lines all over the place um, we don't have that right now uh, in fact uh, you know while unemployment might be the real unemployment might be somewhere 16 percent 17 percent still obviously the vast majority of Americans have jobs um, and while many of us uh, have this incredible tension over our health care or over our future because 4 out of 10 Americans don't even have one month savings and so that people people are living on the edge but we're not starving.
1: But and but so, but but we but we. Sorry to interrupt, but sure. we could we could we could be reaching that point. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I certainly, in my travels and knowing the people that I know, I'm now having a lot of people saying, um, "We've got a month left." Uh, yeah. Whether they're in small business or they're sitting in a home, they're actually people are now saying to me across the board, "We've got about a month."
2: Yeah, uh, and I think that that's true. Uh, and i don 't know if the you know it 's all going to hit uh, this year uh, and you know and maybe we 'll even muddle along for for this year and maybe you know the wealth effect created by the rising stock market will help enough people uh, and the government can continue to print money and and provide spot stimulus and and you know maybe we will get through this particular boom and bust cycle of our economy but
1: but that, uh, but surely that's a recipe for disaster. Printing yeah. money as we did in forty six, forty seven, and then um,
2: it only makes the the bus harder the next time.
1: Yes, yeah, but that's, but that's uh, I mean, if you, if you don't have any money in the system, and you're continuing that, um, and you're seeing base industries disappear, you're seeing the deficit go up and up and up. Uh, do, w- will we not get to the point here? where we really are going to have a meltdown, which potentially could happen this year.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, and, you know, how that meltdown <laughs> looks um, you know, worse than the last one, right? And the last one was, was pretty nerve-wracking. Um, uh, the, the thing to bring us all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, uh, that that's hard for people to understand if they haven't thought about this a lot. Um, y- you can't just print money because you have to create value. And... You know there are so many people who are making money in America right now, who aren't producing anything. Uh, they're not. They're they're making wealth out of the air, quite literally, as opposed to making a train or making a desk, making a piece of furniture, uh, or, or even adding value to a system in some way.
1: Well, um, it's, it, is is that, with that said, is this changing the face of this nation now to being devoid of the middle classes?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's my real concern. Um, uh, we can talk about plenty of professions. Um, writing books is one of them. Uh, again, I, I can be, be personal with, um, but, but I think I can, can come up with lots of other examples of this where there are a few people, uh, movies would be another example, of, that very familiar to people. Um, there are a few companies, a few people at the top of those companies who are doing very, very well, and then there's everybody else who doesn't know when they're going to be able to move into a house that has enough room for their kids doesn't know when they're going to be able to move into a neighborhood with decent schools. Uh, because not only don't they have the money today, they, they can't, like you once could, they can't sit down and say, if I get this advanced degree and I work really hard, I will get promoted to this level, and I know this salary is out there in the future for me, and I can save for that. Right now, you know, the vast majority of Americans can't look into the future like that at all. A tiny few can. Uh, that is the disappearing middle class, and, and that very, very much concerns me.
1: Do you, do you really th- believe that anybody in Washington uh, or even London, because from what I understand, actually the u k is heading for another spike in the economy, really realizes just how bad it is out there on the street?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think so, and again, I think it's because well, you know, you know
1: we're we're not quite starving yet,
2: and you know I, I mean I think the pictures have to get really, really bad us to realize uh, what the size of the problem is but uh, but here's the problem for me in a nutshell Uh, the promise of america uh, after the war is very simple if you had a pretty good job you could have a pretty good home with a pretty good car near a pretty good school that's the middle class for you and right now you need to have you need to be a vice president of a company in order to afford a decent house near a good school and be sure that your kids are going to be have a good future in America. Uh instead, you know, I, I don't have to tell your your listeners, this they all they all know about drive till you qualify in California, for example. People are commuting 90 minutes both ways to work just so they can have a backyard for their kids. You know that's unsustainable, but that's that's the society that we've we built right now.
1: Where does that um where does that leave us? It, does it leave us uh really having to accept that there is huge responsibility, irresponsibility, in Wall Street at this stage and, and, yeah, and so, in industry.
2: Yeah, and, and somebody yeah. Uh, is going to have to, to, to reform a rotten system from the inside. Uh, I think it has to be uh, pretty systemic, and, and I don't see any evidence uh, that the current administration, which, which came to power on very high hopes, uh, has been willing to take on any of that. Um, we've really been dabbling in steps here. Uh, and there has to be some really bitter medicine. I mean, here's some other... I, I love simple numbers, just to, to crystallize an argument. Um, for a very long time, basically, houses cost three times an annual salary. So when my dad bought his first home, he was a Catholic high school teacher making 10000 a year, and he bought a home in a decent enough neighborhood, humble but decent enough, for 27000 10000 salary, $27,000 house. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, so find for me somewhere in America where you earn 50000 a year and you can buy a $150,000 house. It doesn't exist. And, and all of that is because Wall Street has pumped up the value of these homes through all of this funny money. And I am a firm believer that until those prices get back down, until those ratios restore themselves, I mean, you have to eventually pay for the house. Uh, until people can make enough money at a decent job, Buy a decent house, then our economy is going to be in a tizzy
1: well frankly, um, there are so many people who have lost their homes and everything. it makes you wonder how they 're going to get back to a point where they can even have a home again if sure. if if the if the Opportunities are not there. I, I, I'm terribly British, but but I'm I'm knowledgeable on how the the the, the United States of America um, created itself, and I and I was under the impression uh, back in the Pilgrim days that it created itself because you have to do it for yourself. You have to get out there. You have to strive. Nobody's going to help you, which is probably the very best system that that, that you could have, because as soon as you have a social system as you have in Europe, people sit down and say, well, I don't really have to do much because I can uh, rely upon Social Security and National Mm. Health Service and everything else, which comes back to bite everybody. But if, if you lose the will of people, as I believe we are now in this country, to fight for small business, to fight for cottage industries... Um, w- w- what is going to happen here? Uh, because that's clearly, and, and that's where I was going to go looking at the individual now, looking at the humanitarian aspect of this. I, it, it's, it, it's becoming very apparent that people are actually losing the will to do anything at all.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and losing <coughs> hope that if they take a risk, a small risk like start a business or, or go back to school, as I mentioned, uh, that that'll pay off. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think this is, this is the biggest problem that america faces you know kids kids getting out of school with very advanced degrees uh, with big loans uh, just not having any idea where they might go if they're interested in starting a life and starting a family um family values uh, is a term that gets thrown around an awful lot in america right now by both parties to me this is family values we need to to, to get back to creating america where people can, can imagine a future uh, that's safe and secure for themselves and their kids and, and that they can be comfortable enough and I don't know, I don't know where that is right now
1: and, and would it be safe enough to say that in order for that to occur we're going to have to see a major restructuring of Wall Street, yeah. a, a major restructuring led by government and if not government because they're incapable of somebody in the private sector or even a profound prolific leader that will suddenly just appear and change things, change the paradigm overnight which well, al- which has often occurred in history
2: sure if we look at at history if it's, if the government doesn't do it uh, someone in the street will uh, and it, it, you know we have had that happen in america we've had i w- you know by my count really two civil wars in america one over um one in the 1860s and another one over civil rights in the 1960s so uh, I think it's entirely possible we'll have another one. I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, I have myself wondered, as I look at these incredible bonuses that Wall Street has paid and the incredible pain they've inflicted on everybody, uh, amazed at how little marching in the streets there has been so far. Um, and maybe we just haven't gotten to that point yet, uh, that there isn't enough suffering to cause people to get to, to get there. But if, if we don't fix it uh, legislatively, that's how it'll be fixed.
1: How do you see this uh, year panning out um, if we we see that many industries have, have collapsed? Uh, are there any other industries that you feel that n- could now suffer by um, huge layoffs, uh, like the credit card companies, uh, these financial institutions, where we can clearly see that people are now... Uh, at the end of their cycle, where they're now maxed out even on credit, could it be that we see uh, an implosion in in the very organizations that that have created so much of this turmoil that they're going to see them, the the demise of themselves?
2: Uh, the companies that are pure credit card companies are are definitely having a difficult time. I um, mean, the, the financial the, the banks uh, many many banks have credit cards merely as part of their portfolio, and obviously they're they're spread much wider. Uh, I worry a lot about the auto industry in America, which, which got uh, just a crazy shot in the arm last year um, from, from you know, basically a huge government payout through new, new car buyers, but created a, you know an artificial uh, blip. Um, what's happening at Toyota that's uh, in the news is, is another example of the kind of, of uh, you know, frankly, nonsense that's created when companies get fat and big and lazy.
1: Don't, don't you think with Toyota it's an absolute irony that there seems to be so much hype on the Prius when you can look, you can go into a Toyota car lot and see the Prius sitting there uh, next to a Toyota Highlander that's consuming <laughs> 15 miles to the gallon? Sure,
2: sure. Uh, you know, the people, a lot of people bought into the marketing and the Prius was largely a status symbol for most folks anyway, you know. Um, Perfectly good hybrids. I've heard wonderful stories. Honda was making a Civic as a hybrid at the time, but it looked exactly like standard Civic, and did poorly because when people bought a hybrid, they wanted to be telling all their neighbors, "Look how environmentally sensitive I am." Uh, that was uh, one of the reasons it sold so well. But uh, you know, now, uh, you know, Toyota, if any company. Would have held on to the high standards of quality. We thought it would be Toyota, right? But, uh, but not so.
1: So, um, reflected in industry now, do you think it's rather a, a loss leader or, or somewhat of a, a, a sham that that there is so much talk about sustainability and companies, uh, even the bigger companies, uh, showing that their so-called sustainability uh, mandate as part of their their mission. Um, is that not um, is that not a failure in itself?
2: Uh, it was a big marketing campaign, right? Um, and we all got excited about that. Uh, and, and not that there haven't been important changes that have occurred, but, um, you know, I'm actually looking at a garbage can right now with a big sticker on it that says, Think Green. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we're all thinking about it. Um, but I, I don't know... Um, I don't know how much we're going to focus on that while while the rest of the economy is burning down.
1: What uh, uh, What advice would you give to people now, um, people in, in all areas of life, uh, in in ranging from uh, at the end of their tether to being in absolute despair to thinking about how they can rebuild their financial future?
2: No, it's it's very hard. Uh, I have a whole hundred page section of my my latest book oh, where I have this pyramid where folks can kind of pick off wherever they happen to be because the ob- advice obviously is very, very different, uh, but just to sum it up briefly, clearly cash is going to to be very, very important um, we 've already mentioned how many folks don 't even have one month savings if you have a job, you know squirrel that away you know this is plan for the one year famine over the next seven years, if you will. Uh, Cash is going to be very important. Um, but w- given that inflation is very likely to occur, um, you know, cash is also pretty vulnerable. So uh, diversity in investments is going to be important. And, uh, and I don't want anyone to rush out and buy gold off a television commercial. Uh, but I do think that people who have maybe a sensible real estate investment or two and a good amount of savings and a good amount of money invested cons- very conservatively in something like index funds uh, is really the best way to hedge yourself against what might happen uh, if if the worst occurs then folks who have prepared uh, will survive like you might in a natural disaster and, and actually perhaps come out uh, very well on the other side of it and, and, and thrive uh, when other folks are or just devastated. So that's something to really think about.
1: And what would be your advice uh, for the youngsters now who have come out of uh, education um, uh, and most of them I come across every day, they're they're looking for jobs um, that are absolutely um, weighed down with huge debt in a career, even over the last four or five years that may not even exist anymore. What would you uh, offer to them?
2: Well, well, you know, that's just a nightmare. Let me me split my advice into two quick pieces. First of all, if you are considering school or even in school right now, I think you need to, to finally throw off the notion that it's really valuable for you to go to a school with a big name that costs a lot of money. I think for the vast majority of young people today, that's a huge waste of money. The best thing you can possibly do is be 22-year-old and debt-free or close to it, so that you have flexibility. There's nothing sadder than someone with a social work degree and a $600 a month loan payment they have to make who has to go work in an office at some insurance company in order to pay their loans. So maintaining flexibility is incredibly important. But if you're already in that spot, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult um, uh, family resources would be your best bet, but beyond that, uh, you know, there's, uh, there are new programs the government has just begun for folks who want to work in nonprofits, uh, where the, the cost of the loan is actually only a percentage of your income if you're doing something like teaching at, at, a, at an urban school. Those are really worth considering as are government jobs where, uh, where some of the loan is paid back for service, uh, but if those loans are private loans uh, that you've taken out with a bank, at, at a higher rate than the federal federally insured loans uh, it 's a very very tough problem
1: what would be your final words of your memories that you bring with you from earlier days and uh, and your thoughts for the future your your the best thoughts that you can you can have at this stage
2: well, uh, however bleak things are uh, they 're certainly nowhere near as bleak as they were in the 1930s and we 're not facing an enemy or anything like Hitler uh, so uh, I do think that America is is a sleeping giant, and it often takes, you know, we can be we can be lazy, but uh, we have risen to the challenge many times in the past, and I do think that will happen again. Uh, I think we're deciding right now just how big that challenge is going to be. You know, there are, uh, sometimes you change the oil uh, before a major massive damage occurs to the engine, sometimes you change the engine. And I think right now we're deciding as a society if we're going to change the oil now, or we're going to have to do a total engine overhaul in, uh, you know, in a couple of years.
1: And you would agree that it's possibly we're looking at a rebirth in our society? Uh,
2: well, I, uh, I hope to see one. Uh, I, don't, I, don't re- I don't really see the same shoots that uh, President Obama has seen yet, uh, but I do think that potential is there.
1: Bob Sullivan of MSNBC, I do thank you for joining us today and uh, wish, you, wish you well. Thank you very much for having me and good luck to your listeners. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org.